So this morning I'm going to do something a little bit odd, unusual, a little bit weird. Most of you visitors won't recognize the weirdness of it, but believe me, it's weird. I thought last week's message on, I think you were speaking, was it last week? Yeah. So I thought your message on James was really impactful. And so this last week I've been reading through James and... uh, I don't know if like it works like this for you guys, but like when you're reading the scriptures and you see some things in there, and it's just it's so exciting. They just, I, you know, like I just get filled inside and just want to share what I things that I've enjoyed and appreciated. And sometimes it's just like waiting for a relief valve, some opportunity to share it. So here comes Sunday. So I go take a look at James and my and what. I mean, there's different ways to study the Bible. I think. Uh, there's looking for doctrine, there's looking for commands that we should apply to our lives and that kind of thing. And what One of the things that I've been learning to do is look for the train of thought and try to see the flow. And so as I was reading through James this week, I noticed the flow, or, or you know, in a way that I haven't seen it before uh, through the whole epistle. So my intent is to go through the entire book of James uh, kind of a bird's eye level, so don't worry, guys. I'm not going to get into the details and mess that up or anything, but uh, just to catch the flow of thought from front end, and uh, it's a really, it really is a powerful epistle. There's <coughs> a really strong message in there, and the more I thought about it, the more I thought how applicable it is to my life and and to our lives and Christianity as a whole today. I think is really uh, applicable. I'm going to go right to the punchline of the epistle where I think I think he starts in verse 2 and works his way through. Uh, it's, he's, he's definitely writing in the Jewish type of mindset, the Eastern mindset. Uh, the Western mindset is a very logical, progressive. You start with point A and you work your way and, you, and that leads to your next point and the very logical conclusions. Uh, the Eastern mindset is more metaphorical type, and uh, the Western mindset, <laughs> the Western mindset, uh, loves knowledge and logic and intelligence. Really focuses on intelligence, where the Eastern mindset is more about wisdom, and uh, wisdom is the, is the uh, being in a particular situation and understanding the ramifications of the situation and what to do next in your given situation. So you, you have to kind of live the experience in order to have the wisdom. So wisdom, you know, we get wisdom by going through life and you learn your lessons through life. So to be able to take a hypothetical situation and enter into that and realize the ramifications of that particular circumstance and see the wisdom on how you ought to handle that, that's what they pursued after. So it's very metaphorical. You've got to have the story or the imagery in order that you can enter into it and then grasp the wisdom in the passage. And that's the way James is writing. So he he works from the beginning and brings you through different scenarios, and he's driving to this point in chapter 4, in verse 10, really I think is where he is going to Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Uh, and that's in the context of sinners 
cleanser and you sinner. So the idea is to acknowledge and recognize the reality of your sin before God. Humble yourself with that reality and and uh, he will lift you up. And it's really phenomenal quite how God lifts us up because, you know, uh, my uh, Hope and Jesse, they were... Uh, they were lifted up, you know, as small business. They were taken to the White House. They shook hands with the president and stuff like that. I mean, they were elevated from just being a regular small business because the president is so high in this country, right? You know, he, and he recognized them. He came over, shook their hands, introduced, sniffed their hair, whatever else. And they, they were like personal interaction with them. When you get a great personality, quit laughing at me. When you get a great personality who... Uh, recognizes and interacts with you, you're being lifted up. Now, in my field of engineering, uh, we're professionals, right? We're recognized by the state as being professionals and whatever else. And so there's uh, there's a lot of engineers in the state, more than you would real, more than you would expect. And not anyhow. And uh, so we get together sometimes, and you you give each other awards for outstanding designs and things like that. Stupidest thing I've ever seen. You know, a bunch of us <laughs> standing around patting each other in the back. So today you're going to pat me on the back, and next year I'll do the same for you. We give each other awards. I mean, it's like, well, this is the... There's not, to me, there's like, there's not a lot of lifting up. It's just kind of a pat on the back. You got, that's different. I'm hoping Jesse got, they went to the president. I mean, he's far greater than the rest of us. And they, So if God is going to recognize you and draw you close... You are lifted up indeed. So that's what he's driving to. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. He will lift you up. All right, that's where we're going. Now let's see how he gets there. And it's brilliant how he does this. Absolute, I mean, the wisdom with which he demonstrates, what he brings is about incredible. I just hope I can be able to share that so you can see it as well. Uh, so chapter 1, verse 1, and we've... Uh, I mean, you guys have gone through James a lot, so you, you know, we're already, uh, I guess we got a lot of visitors, you poor people. The rest of us are pretty familiar with some of these details of James, so I, I'm going to try really hard not to get into the details and, and uh, assume that you're familiar with the book already as we work our way through. I want to point out in verse 1, well, let's ask the Lord for his blessing before we get started. Our Father, will you come before you and look to you for your favor towards us to be able to show to us the reality of your the truth and your word and that your spirit would be at work to apply the relevance and reality in our hearts we pray in jesus name amen all right so verse one uh james bondservant of god and and of the lord jesus christ <coughs> to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad so he's writing to jews and he's going to write as a Jew to the Jews. You can't really treat this like Paul's epistles, where he go like in the Romans and Galatians, where it's a very logical progression. He lays his point out, he and and that point then he shows the connection between point one to point two, and point two builds on point one, and it just it's a very logical. No, this this is not going to be like that. These are going to look like disjointed random story or random points that are kind of put together. It's like he was thinking about trials in this point, and then he was thinking about, uh, you know, uh, the rich and the poor, and he's thinking about how we treat one on discrimination and that kind of... No, no. It looks disjointed, but what you have to do is you have to enter into the reality of what he's talking about 
And then as you see the implications in that, it will lead you to the next point. And what James is doing is he's writing to these Jews who, they were very similar to what we see like on a fiddle on a roof type of thing. And the fiddle on a roof, you see these people that are very pious towards God. You know, they recognize that they're Jews, they believe in God. And this is the way the Jews were even in the day of Jesus. Like they were very faithful in their religion to go to the temple and their feasts and the sacrifices. And even if they didn't quite get there, they at least supported people who went there. You know, they're very pious in that way. But like on the fiddle of the roof, you watch these people and their interaction and all their little arguings and fightings and all the rest of that stuff. I mean, like they're not pious at all the way just on on Saturday or Sabbath day or whatever. You know, so it's very pious toward God, but it seems like their daily life doesn't always match up with what their piety would seem to imply. That's who he's writing to. And and Jesus, when he talked with them, the Jews, like he was always driving at their heart, trying to show them that your real problem is not in your your religiosity, your real problem is there in your heart. And James is going to drive to that, but it's hard to take somebody that's pious and show them that their heart is corrupt. But James does it. So he starts out with something that they can all relate to and encouragement towards them because as Jews, there was only a few of them that believed, a remnant, and the rest of them uh, were kind of against the Christians. Remember, there was always this... Uh, you know, if you, if you took Jesus, if you started following Jesus, you ran the risk that your family would want to ostracize you. So they face trials. So that's why, so he starts out then in verse 2, uh, right where they're at. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. And he gives some beautiful wisdom on how to view trials. How, what the, that it's not something that you, uh, it's not just something that happens that's bad and and you, you look to God to you know kind of give you some comfort. No, this is there's purpose behind this. God's going to take the trial and He's going to work something good out of it. The testing of your faith produces patience. Let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So God's going to take it and bring about that that perfection that you long for anyhow. That that uh, that the beauties of character and so forth. And, and you can almost take this and. <clears throat> And think of the Old Testament saints, uh, their, the trials that they would go through, say like Job. And imagine being in trials like for him, like that's to count it all joy. And Job did. At the end, he counted it all joy, right? I mean, when he got to the end, he was so, he was on his knees before God and saying, oh, you are a tremendous and amazing and wonderful God. During the trial, it was a different story. It was really hard for Job to see the value of it, but afterwards he was totally grateful to God. Or you can look at David and the trials that David went through when he was on the run from King Saul. I mean, a lot of times we read those stories and we just see these wonderful things that David did, but, you know, he was on the run. He was living in caves, and you can ask Dan about living in caves. I mean, he's got a van, and it looks like a cave on the inside, but it's got a bed, and there's certain comforts in it. But long term, that's no good. David was on, you know, he had those trials that David went through. He, was on the, he wasn't with his parents or his wife or his family or, you know, he was... He was on the run. <clears throat> and yet God worked in David. Marvelous things produced a great king as a result of these trials he went through. So James is reminding them of that. Count it all joy when you go into trials. And when you're in this trial, if you lack wisdom, and that's the real question, like imagine David as he's going through this trial as King Saul, like, what do you do? How are you supposed to respond? Like, and he's constantly looking to God 
All right, King Saul is here taking a dump at the mouth of the cave, you know, and we're in the inside, like, what do you do? Or Job, as he's going through it, crying out, where is God? Why has God abandoned me? We're looking for some insight from God to understand what they're going through or how to handle it or what to do. The problem is, uh, you ask for wisdom in a trial, and you can imagine these Jews as they're going through their different trials of their neighbors that hated them, you know, their, their fellow, their family members that hated them because they were followers of Christ. Like, how do you interact with them? And and he says, you ask for wisdom, ask from God, but if God gives you the wisdom of how to handle this, you better follow it. And the Jews could think back on what it was like for to ask for wisdom from God. There was a period after the Babylonians carried everybody away captive in the, in the Jewish history, and Jer- they left Jeremiah behind, remember? So Jeremiah was behind, and there was a group of other Israelites were there, and they ended up in some political, I mean, you can read about Gedaliah and all the rest of that stuff, you know, like the, whatever. The Jews that were in the land were scared that the Babylonians were going to come back and put the smack down on them because things hadn't gone very well inside the land. And so they were trying to decide, do we stay or do we hightail it and go down to Egypt and look for protection down Egypt? So they asked God for wisdom. They said, what do we do? And Jeremiah said, well, you're not going to like the answer, but God says, stay in the land. And Israel said, yeah, the Jews said, yeah, no. They went off to Egypt. It was a bad idea. That's what there's, so that's what James is getting at. You know, when you're in this trial, you're in this hard situation, you don't know what to do and everything's falling apart and all looks bad and then they, you can imagine these Jews and their their family hate them. You know their people. You know their business is kind of going downhill because they're being boycotted around there. It's like, what do you do? You ask for God for wisdom, and what does God say? Turn the other cheek. Show love and compassion. Love your enemies. Wow. Let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of a sea driven and tossed by the wind. Do not let that man suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Like, you have to receive the wisdom that came from God. That wasn't their practice as Jews. The Jews loved their neighbors and their friends, and they hated their enemies. And Jesus rebuked them for that, remember? This was... But then, but you read, that as, the, as a Jew would read this, he would say, well... That is what Jesus said. That I mean, he had to acknowledge that James was right. And so James goes on, then he talks about the lowly brother, glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation. Now my Bible has a heading in there that says the perspective of the rich and the poor. And I realized this week, it's not the rich and the poor. It's the rich and the lowly. The brother that doesn't see himself as... You know, he's, he's just an average person, you know, lowly, he's, he's just on the ground. And he describes a meadow of the grass and the flowers springing up, all this grass. And he says, that's what the rich person is like, is that it, the grass grows up and the flowers and everything. And it is kind of what the rich people are like, is that you've got somebody and all of a sudden they become rich and they're up and they're beautiful and they're glorious and they're above all the rest of us. But in the meadow, the grass comes and then it goes. The flowers come and then they go, but the dirt is always there. The lowly brother is all. There's always lowly brothers. It's like the Lord told, or God told the Israelites, like the the poor you have with you always. The same way the lowly are always there. You've always got the average everyday people whose feet are on the dirt. 
Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation as he goes through trial. That God, I mean, David was like a lowly one. He was a shepherd, right? And he goes through all these trials. And we see now, looking back through the trials, that God was exalting David. was really, God's attention was focused on David through all these trials that he went through. He was, though he probably didn't recognize it at the time, the fact that God considered David worth putting attention into that man, that was an exaltation of this holy man. And uh, any believer that goes through a trial has the same attention of God put on it. Let the lowly brother glory in the exaltation. That's how you view this. You know, see that God is working in your life. Uh, don't be like a rich man who is just excited because he's rich. He, the riches will go away. And so he continues then in verse 12, Blessed is the man who endures temptation. When he's approved, he shall receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Again, thinking of Job and of David and all these ones that have gone through trials. And we can begin to appreciate what it means to, as these Jews, they go through their antagonism from their neighbors and so forth. Endure. God is not abandoned you. Then he says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. And as the Westerners, we don't like to take two different topics and merge them together. You want to keep them uh, separate. So we have a little bit of difficulty here because we look at trials... And that's different than being tempted, right? In a trial, you're going through a hard time. When you're being tempted, you're, you're wanting to do what's wrong, even though you know, you're being drawn to do what's wrong. There's a, there's somebody's trying to urge you to do what's wrong. So trial, temptation are two different things. Now, the difficulty in this passage is that the Greek words are pretty much the same, as for, so far as I can tell. Trial and temptation here. Because in the Jewish mindset, they had no problems taking separate ideas and merging them together because they knew that, say, when David was going through his trials, he was tempted to do things that were wrong, to, say, kill Saul or whatever. I mean, to them, it was one and the same thing. You go through a hard trial, you're going to find yourself wanting to do something that you would normally never do if you lived in comfort and ease. Like it's, they went, they went hand in hand in the Jewish, and so he treats them in the same way, even though in our mindset they're two separate things, but so often they do go together, and they are, and this is, and he's recognizing that. So he's saying that God does not, God is not tempted by. He says in verse thirteen, "Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone." So they know that when they go through a trial, oftentimes you feel drawn to turn from God or drawn towards evil in a trial. That's not good. It's not look when God sends or says allows a trial, he's not trying to get you to stumble. You go back to Job, and you see the trial that came upon Job. Satan brought the trial. God allowed it. Satan's intent was to get Job to stumble. That was not God's intent. God was not trying to get Job to stumble. He was going to take that trial and perfect Job and make him better than what he used to be. That's what he intended. So God does not tempt or put trials on people with the intent that you stumble. That's Satan does that. And for us, we are tempted because we have these evil desires in our heart. And he makes note of this. He's saying this on purpose because he's going to get back to this idea of our evil desires in our own heart. Now, if you go into a temptation, like it's, the, the deal about a, tempt, a trial, and both Satan and God acknowledge this, is that when you're under trial, that's when the true you starts to come out. 
It's not true you when you've got things easy and you're doing everything the way it was. When you're under trial, that's when... That's, and to us, it's like, well, when I'm under trial, let's say, you know, like I, I get grouchy or I snap at somebody. Well, sorry, I didn't mean to snap at you. I just, I was kind of hungry and I was tired and it just kind of slipped out. That's not who I really am. On the contrary, that is who you really are. It's when you're under trial and you have, you lose your strength, your ability to hold back the real you. It's when it starts to slip out. That's, and you look at what Satan and God, as in their conversation, as they talked about Job, they said, the one said Job will fall, the other one said, no, Job won't fall. They knew that the trial would show who Job was. And it's, that's the way she works. But then he talks about, do not be deceived, beloved brethren. Every good and perfect gift is from above. It comes down from the Father. Sorry, God gives good gifts. And verse 18, of his own will he brought us forth. He saved us because he wanted to save us. He saw our repentance and belief and he saved us. You don't think that he's the one that gives good gifts and he's the one that saves you and he's going to turn around and give you trials in order to get you to stumble. No, he, there is no variation or shadow of turning. He gives you good gifts. He intends good. It's not today he gives you a gift. gift. Tomorrow he tries to trip you up. No, he doesn't change. <clears throat> so he gives them meaning and purpose in their trials as they look through this and they're reading along and they're like, ah, oh, this really is comforting and it's really encouraging and strengthening. And so then he talks to them, he says, so then, beloved brethren, be, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak. He's going to focus on the speaking thing. He's, he's transitioning here. He's, saying, he's kind of talking about trials and now he's going to start going towards the direction that he wants to go, something that he wants to address. And he talks about speaking and slow to wrath because, you know, when you get under trial sometimes and it starts to... Your true character comes out, at least for guys, you know, they tend to get, uh, that's when they bite the spouse's head off or something, you know, that's when they get angry at the people that are, you know, when you get under oppression, you get angry at the person that's oppressing you and sometimes angry at the people that are around you. And uh, he says, don't, that's, that's obviously wrong. Endure with patience. Let God do his work in the trial and lay aside all filthiness we know that that's right. We know that that's what we're supposed to do. And so now he starts getting at the heart of it. He says, be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And remember, he's talking to these pious Jews who know the scripture. They're faithful. And yet it's so easy to give yourself over to wrath and rage against those who are oppressing you or those around you that are mean to you or whatever, to rage against them. That's He's like... That's not what the Word of God says. You say you know the Word of God. Uh, it's really important that you follow the Word of God and follow the example that in that perfect law of liberty you continue in it. So 20, verse 26 then is where he really gets to it. He says, you, if anyone thinks he's religious, if you Jews think you're religious and pious, but you don't bridle your tongue, you deceive yourself. Your religion is useless. If you... And they, you know, this is something that's hard to argue. You can see James' point that, yeah, if you don't bridle your tongue. And normally, if I was taking it, I would think of, all right, so if I'm, uh, I, you know, I view myself as religious, then I don't want to be out murdering people or stealing or committing adultery because that would contradict my religion. He gets, he takes it even farther. He says, well, what about your tongue? You know, you start talking mean or bad or angry about type of people. You know, that's, that really contradicts your religion, too. And so if you're going to walk around bad-mouthed people, you're really undermining 
all of your piety. When, and I've seen that before. I've seen people who are so pious and so holy, and then they talk, and sometimes outslips these sharp words and harsh. And that really changes your perception of a person. Like, oh, I thought you were a really godly person, but uh, <laughs> that's hard to recover from when, that's, when something like that slips out. So it's hard to argue what he's saying here. This is obviously quite true. And then he really sticks it to him. He says, pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in the trouble. They were thinking that pure and undefiled religion was to be faithful on Sabbath, to go to the feast, to offer your sacrifices, uh, tithe, uh, you know, all these things in the law. And he says, well, you guys can do all that stuff. And they did in the Old Testament, remember? The prophets got after him and said, look, you bring your sacrifices and everything else like that, but you don't show justice to the orphans and the widows. And God got after them because they ignored such a... And so the Jews couldn't argue this one either. They said, all of your piety and sacrifices and everything you bring doesn't mean anything if you're not showing justice to the orphans and the widows and taking care of them. So what James is doing is he's shaking them in their comfort. They think they're doing so well, and he's showing them that there are some real problems in your life, your religion. And so he starts to, in chapter 2 then, is where he starts to show them that, hey, the, uh, the well, he's, he's going to bring the, the link between faith and works. And so he starts with a rather e- easy example. He says, don't hold the faith of your Lord Jesus Christ, don't hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. Don't show discrimination. If you've got somebody that comes that's all dressed up nice, don't treat him differently than somebody who comes in that's lowly and not dressed so nice. And this is one that the Jews could look at and say, yes, yes, we agree. that It would be wrong. The Lord Jesus died for all. So this is what they would do is when they get into the situation. Right? And let's imagine what it would be like. Here you're at the church. I'm a believer. Here comes somebody else. He's a believer. Very nice looking. Here's somebody else. He comes. He's a believer, but he's not so very nice looking. I mean, like, who do I normally favor? I mean, a lot of times I'll go talk to the rich guy instead because, you know, it's, that's... But that's contradicts because... Jesus has died for both alike and has saved both of them. So for me to show favor to one and not to the other is different than the Lord Jesus. It's, therefore, it's not right. It doesn't match my faith. If I truly believe that Jesus has died for me, as well as we're all sinners, then I'm going to treat them both the same. This is what wisdom will say when it looks at the situation. Now, James doesn't spell that all out, but you can see how if you think about the situation, like there's the conclusion that you have to come to. And this one's relatively easy to see. Uh, and he, he drives home, in case you have difficulty seeing it, he drives home the point farther and talks about how God has chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith. You know, like the poor are actually elevated in the sight of God and the rich are kind of put down. Like it really does not make sense to honor the rich over the poor when they're in your church. And then he goes farther in verse 8 and he says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to scripture, you shall love your neighbors yourself. That's, this is the law. This is what, when, Jesus, when they asked Jesus, what, are the two most, what is the most important commandment? He said, you need to love the Lord your God. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So he's like, if you really believe in Jesus and, tr- and hold to his words, then you have to love your neighbor, whether he's rich or poor. Like, get, and he's, you know, it's like, by the time James is done here, it's just like, okay, well, that, that becomes really clear now. 
that discrimination inside the church is wrong and it really contradicts my faith. And so for me to say I follow Jesus and show discrimination, that's, he's driven home the point that no, that doesn't make any sense at all. And of course, wisdom then would take this and apply this in all kinds of different areas of life. Not just discrimination, but like how are other areas in your life where you, where what I do contradicts what my faith would be. <clears throat> and, and he, he doesn't, I mean, he just, that breaking the Lord's command, he's like, you know, you, you say you're not guilty of committing adultery or committing murder, but if you break the law, I mean, you're disobeying the, the God who gave those other commands. You know, it's just, it's... So, judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You, you know, God is going to hold you accountable for how you live, if, you know, if you contradict your faith. So now that we've agreed with him on the idea that the faith uh, impacts how we're going to act, if you're truly holding on to your faith, you're truly grasping it and applying it to your life, it's going to impact how you live. Then he takes us into the next part and takes it a little bit farther. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone has faith but he does not have works? Now, this would be hard to understand if James started here. But he didn't start here. He started with the trials, and then he talked about applying the word of God, and then he talked about here the faith and and discrimination and so forth. So now we're at a point where we actually understand a little bit of how faith and works are kind of linked together. So now when he says, if someone has says, he has faith but does not have works, we're at a place where we can actually begin to grasp what he's talking about. It makes a little sense. Yeah, I can see. If I say I have faith and I show discrimination, it doesn't do me any good to say I have faith. That faith, how is that faith going to say? Like if I say I have all the faith in the world, is that faith going to propel me into heaven? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food and I say I really love your brother and I don't give them anything to alleviate their, their suffering... Does that do them any good? I mean, does it do any good to say you love God, to be all pious and do all these things and not play out in your life? No, it doesn't do any good at all. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. And James says, no, you show me your faith. You can't do it. You can't show that you have faith without works. I will show you my faith by my works. I will show you that I really believe that Jesus said, love your neighbor because I will love my neighbor. And he, he, uh, he goes into those examples then of Abraham and of Rahab. And it's, he shows, as we go in here, that it's really is, it's not uh, always straightforward <laughs> of what it means to live out your faith. Abraham was going to offer his son up on the altar. Well, that doesn't look like living out the faith at all, but it was what God commanded him to do. I mean, normally people don't walk around offering. I mean, if you take somebody who's like, I'm going to offer my son on the altar, you wouldn't call them a pious person, right? I mean, a normal situation. Sometimes it can be difficult to tell how these faith and works work together. Or Rahab. This is, this is one that uh, bugs me a little sometimes. Uh, people will harp on Rahab for lying to the soldiers. The soldiers came up and said, did the spies come here? Nope, no spies. Well, they were here briefly, but they're gone now. They are up on a roof underneath the straw. She's lying through her teeth. Mm-hmm. And James is saying, look, that is the demonstration of her faith. She believed that the God of Israel was the God of her, and she allied herself to the God of Israel 
and she turned treasonous to her own people. And through her lie, she demonstrated her faith. So, like the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works. So by the time he gets done here, like you've grasped what he's saying, and you begin to realize, yeah, it really is impossible to... Like Paul teaches us that you don't get saved by works, you get saved through faith. And he distinguishes between faith and works pretty strongly, and we understand what he means. But James is showing us that the reality is that faith, true faith, does not, it, it doesn't, I mean, you, you can't separate faith and works in your life. Like, it's, it's not my works that God, by, that God looks at that he saves me, but if I have faith, there's going to be works, and you can't separate the two. I mean, they work together. They are the one, the works follows the faith. And he shows how they're intricately intertwined and you, you can't have faith and not have works. If you have faith without works, your faith is empty. That's really what he's driving at. And when you get done, it's like, I see what you mean. That makes a lot of sense. So then he drives a little bit farther and he starts, you know, he's not just talking about any works, but he says, Brethren, let many of you let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive the stricter judgment, for we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he's perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. So it's it's not just works and what we do with people, but it's what we say. And he shows how what we say can have a huge impact. Just like the little rudder on a ship, you can turn a whole ship with your little tongue, you can turn a whole relationship. From good to bad. You can destroy relationships. You can destroy people. You can undermine. You can do a lot of damage with your tongue. And yet sometimes we think what we say, oopsie, sorry, I didn't mean to say that. And James is saying, look, if your religion, if your faith is true and real and perfect, then your tongue is not going to go where it's not, you're not going to say what it's not supposed to say. What he's doing here is he's getting, I mean, it's, I mean, the Jews were all focused about their actions, what they did, their works and so forth, whether or not you kept the, you know, first of all, whether or not you kept the Sabbaths and all this <laughs> stuff, and then whether or not you treated people with honor, you know, you didn't commit adultery or steal or all the rest of that stuff. And James is going to take her step forward and says, look, you guys have a problem with your tongues. And it's a serious problem. It's not just a little problem. It's a serious problem. And by the time we've gotten to this point of understanding faith and works and how that all ties together and everything like that, we're kind of like, this is a little uncomfortable. But you can't argue it because it's true. And he starts to get down to the heart of the matter in uh, chapter 3 and like verse 8. He says, no man can tame the tongue. It is unruly, evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth produce blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. I mean, what do you say? Like, true. To say I bless God and at the same time curse my brother, like, it, it doesn't. Something is wrong here. How is it that, what, how is it that this spring produces blessing on the one hand and cursing on the other? Like, you can't do that. Your spring is going to be either good water or it's going to be bad water. How is it that you're getting these blasts of bad water coming out of what coming out of where? Verse 
Verse 13, then, who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his, word, that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. So he gets back to that wisdom concept. You know, people are in trials. They ask God for wisdom and type of thing like that. And the wisdom that God is going to give is going to affect your tongue. But, he says in verse 14, if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. Do not boast that you are pious and lie against the reality that you're not pious. He's talking about, so he's, he's gone from the tongue now and he's slipped down to the heart. That's where the tongue feeds out of. That's the spring that produces the water of your speech. It's your heart. And People will be mean to one another. They will say things that are not nice for one of two reasons. Either you have bitter envy against that person, you envy where they're at, or you're looking to glorify yourself. You're seeking yourself, your own promotion. And this is what the Lord was trying to show the Jews. So hard to look into their hearts and see that they had either bitter envy against Christ himself or they were trying to promote themselves. This wisdom to be self-promoting or have envy against somebody, this is not from above. This is earthly, sensual, demonic. This is, I mean, he describes it's like ugly, evil. And in chapter 4, he says, so now where do these wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? Like you, and I mean, like where, how is the situation he's painting? Is that your interaction with people? Like sometimes you get arguments or fights or your anger or your bitter. I mean, like you, you want to damage somebody else. But where does that come from? Why do you want that kind of thing to do these kinds of things? Well, sometimes I'm in this trial and they're being mean to me, so I want to be mean back to them. Where does that come from? That's not the wisdom that's coming from above. Where does that come from? You are tempted by the desires in your own hearts that are trying to pull you into doing what you know is wrong. James is bringing their attention to their heart, and that was not what the Jews normally looked at. It's what Jesus tried to get them to see. Some of them did see. And James is taking it now to the believers, and he's saying, look, it's in your heart. You lust, and you cannot have, and that's why you were angry against this person. That's why you want to fight against that person, because of the desires in your own heart. You are bitter envy, or you're self-seeking inside, and you, you want something that they have, or you want something for your own self, and that's where the wars and fights come from. You ask for God to have whatever these people have or whatever, and you don't get it because you've got this, this, these evil desires inside you. Adulterers and adulteresses. You, and, and what he's saying is, you say you're pious towards God, but you've got bitter envy in your heart, and you're trying to build yourself up, or you're trying to you know, seek for your own self. You say you love God, but you love yourself and you love these things that you want for yourself. And that's where these fighting and wars come from. You are literally in adultery in a spiritual manner, not physical, but a very spiritual type of adultery. Because you, you on the one hand, you hold hands with God and on the other hand, you slap your fellow brother. And God doesn't like that. 
chapter 4, verse 5, do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealousy? Like, this is not an empty phrase. Like, he sees that inside of us, and he, he wants us, and we are we're wanting our own stuff. And so he says, submit to God. Let this, uh, let this truth penetrate your heart. Don't resist it. Submit to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Wash your hands of this. Recognize the reality, the truth of this. The evil inside your heart. And repent, lament, don't be like bragging of how pious or how faithful you are going to church or Sabbath or whatever it is. Lament, mourn because of the evil inside of your own heart. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Because not, we, Sometimes we brag because we're so good, but what about our hearts? Let that break you, mourn, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. And he does. When we take our evil hearts before the Lord, he draws us near to himself. In a very real way, we are lifted up. Near to God. That's the point that he's driving at. Working step by step to get them to recognize that faith and works and everything else that they can see the, the reality of, of our speech and, and realize it's in our hearts. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. He will lift you up. And then after that, he has practical instruction. He's like, when you... He says, don't speak evil of one another, brother, and he who speaks evil of brother and judges his brother speaks evil law, judges law. Because like, you'll see people who don't humble themselves in the sight of the Lord. They, they walk around with all piety as if they're somebody special or something like that. Don't, don't judge them. Sometimes, uh, and I've, I've experienced this, uh, remember in college we ran into a big issue where there was the debate between grace and truth, oddly enough, like you're talking about. And there was people who were accused of having truth and being legalistic. And it was true, they were legalistic. But the people with grace were beating everybody over the head with the hammer of love. I mean, it, <laughs> they were really critical about these people that were under truth and so forth. And it was it was not good. They were judging one another. They were speaking evil of their brother and... I remember in the situation, it was uh, for the people who believed on grace side of things, like it was a burden for them to sit underneath the people, the teaching of the people who believed in law. And they would have felt like trials and hardships. And what do you do? And so you ask for wisdom. And, and uh, I think James would have told them to endure under the trial and uh, wait for God to work his perfect work in themselves. So. 
And then he talks about something else. You know, when you go and do your business and your daily work, you go from this town or whatever to make some profit or whatever. You're like, you know, it's trust in God. Don't just go, this is what I'm going to do and make a lot of money. No, he's like, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this. Trust in the Lord. This is what your faith calls you to do. Trust in God. Chapter 5, I think he's talking about a common source of their trials would be rich people, unbelievers. I think he's talking about unbelievers there. I could be wrong. I think he's talking about unbelievers, and he's just describing the woe that will come upon these people who are oppressing the believers. And it's a source of comfort for people to realize that, you know, evil is overpowering us now, but one day God will call it to account and they will have to answer. And he's intending, I think, to comfort them through this. And so then in verse 7, he talks about how they need to be patient until the coming of the Lord. That's when God will set things out, set things right. They need to watch for the fruit that God will produce in their life as they are patient underneath these trials. And he says in verse 9, do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you also be condemned. And uh, I, I think this is maybe one of the things that he saw that he was really looking to get after. The habit of believers who feel like they're being oppressed by other believers to grumble against one another. And uh, you know, it's a we do it. We do grumble against one another, and I've I've seen us do it, and I've seen myself do it. He. Some people don't do it as much, though. I don't know if I've ever heard my dad grumble against other people. He grumbles a lot. But I'm not sure if he grumbles against other people like I do. And I've noticed it before, uh, but I haven't realized the significance that until now. As we, James here is talking about the tongue and so forth, and this is a very practical output of the faith to not crumble against one another is a good example to follow. Verse 12, he says, Above all, my brethren, do not swear. Be honest is what he's saying. And then the last half, I just put this out there. You guys dissect it and figure it out later. He's talking about suffering. He's talking about a physical sickness. And he's talking about the elders coming and pouring oil. And then he gets talking about sin. I think he is taking sickness and using it as a metaphor of sin, which I think is something that we can understand, that somebody who is sick with sin, in other words, their their spiritual cells are corrupted by, you know, they, they've got that influence of sin. And it's not that they've obviously fallen from faith, but they're not walking the way they should because of the sin that's in their life. It's like they're sick with sin. And he's using the... A vivid metaphor because it's something they could identify with. You know, like normally you would go to the apostle if you could to get a healing. Uh, but sometimes you didn't have apostles around or maybe somebody with a gift of healing wasn't in your assembly. So then you would go to the elders. And then in those days there was a lot of healings, right? But he's taking what they knew about healing. Go to your elders, have them come and pray for you and so forth. And you'll be healed of your sickness. Metaphorically speaking, he translates it into sin as well. Suppose you have that problem where you have bitter envy in your heart or something like that, and you would belong to go to an apostle or somebody somebody as really talented in counseling and being able to help you work your way through that sin that you struggle with, 
since you don't have somebody special, maybe you just go to your elders and they can pray over you. And they can. And the prayer of the righteous will accomplish much. Elijah prayed and he accomplished much. And the elders, they can pray and they can accomplish much too. They're righteous. And that's why he closes then talking about if you turn someone from sin, uh, let, you know, make sure you know that that's a, a great thing to do. So I, I propose, I'm proposing that this bit about sickness is something that they were familiar with, and James is using it as a metaphor then to talk about sin, how to approach that. And I've seen that done before. I've even had the opportunity to experience that, where somebody with sin would come up and look for help from somebody else, and then their lives were greatly they were greatly helped and impacted, and even found victory over that sin. Not not that the person. It's not that the elders know necessarily how to handle your sin. They're not trained in counseling, but they can pray. And you know, I mean, sometimes we're so stupid. We we uh, we want to find some method by which you can overcome your sin. That's a band-aid. The, uh, the reality is, is that God changes you and removes your sin. And that's where the elders have real strength as they walk with the Lord. They are, they are able to pray that God would begin to work and to change you so that the sin is no longer an ongoing problem. And that's kind of where he closes it. It's, it's, this book is designed to intended. I don't know. If, like I said, I'm, a, I'm amazed at the wisdom with which he writes to enter into their situation, to bring it, to segue it, and then bring it, drill it down, right, to expose the, the real problem in the heart. And, uh, and then to show them, once you, once you recognize the reality of, the re, of your heart, the, the evil in your heart, and you, you wash your hands with repentance, come before the Lord, and he lifts you up. Now what do you do? How do you live now? And he gives instruction. Just the same thing that Paul does. Paul would speak about the work that God did. And then he would give instruction on how to live in light of what God has done for you. And I think that's what James is doing here. So I was really encouraged. Like I said, I kind of get excited to be able to trace the train of thought. And, and even though it was really weird to kind of depart from John and jump into James... I thought maybe it'd be it was a, a way for me to share what's inside my heart and hopefully an encouragement for the rest of us. Well, Father, we come before you and thank you for your great grace towards us that you, knowing the sin in our hearts, you've loved us and you draw near and and uh, when we see what it is that you are. You're working in, you're working with us. Like even Job in all of his righteousness, there was that little bit there where he struggled in trusting you, knowing, and that was exposed, and and you drew near to him and spoke with him in a physical way and and showed your approval and acceptance of him by raising him up. In the same way you work in our hearts and work in our lives. And and just thank you for your, your love and your grace and your mercy towards us that your attention is on us, each one of us. And we thank you in Jesus' name, amen.